Nehemiah 7. You can turn there while I help you think a little bit about Nehemiah 7. Several weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago, I watched this movie. I forget the name of it because I'm not great at remembering movies, but it was an action movie, good guys chasing bad guys. But it had this plot twist at the end. All through the movie, I thought, well, the good guys are going after the bad guys. And in the last, like, 19 minutes or whatever, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, the last, like, section flew by because I realized that actually the bad guys had tricked the good guys into chasing them. So the good guys think they're fighting the bad guys, but what they're really doing is heading into an ambush that the bad guys have set up for the good guys. It was this huge plot twist, and I was like, whoa, this makes an awesome movie right at the end. You know, it totally throws me, totally gets me by surprise. I love it in a movie, total surprise. And it's one of those you don't realize until like there's four minutes to go when one of the bad guys says this kind of mysterious sentence to one of the good guys. They were like right at that stressful, tense moment of like good guy versus bad guy. They're both challenging each other. And the bad guy says something to the good guy that made me go, huh, what? And the good guy kind of went, huh, what? And then I was like, oh my goodness. This whole thing is flipped around. The good guy got tricked and the bad guy said it. And now I get it. Nehemiah 7 operates like that. This morning's this surprise plot twist in the story. Let's read the word of the Lord. We're going to read most of chapter 7, but there'll come a point when I ask you to skip down quite a few verses. But for now, start in verse 1 with me. Now, when the wall was rebuilt... And I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. Then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem each at his post, and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the peoples to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, in which I found the following record. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city, who came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ra'amiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Misperet, Bigvi, Nahum, and Ba'ana. The number of men of the people of Israel the sons of Parash, 2,172. The sons of Shepatiah, 372. That's verse 9, and it is the word of the Lord, but I invite you to skip down with me to verse 66, which is shortly after this long list of names of people who are God's worshipers, and each one of them matters. The Lord knows their names, but for now, I invite you to turn or roll, scroll down to verse 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360 people. Besides their male and their female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 male and female singers. 
Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys 6,720. Some from among the heads of fathers' households gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, 530 priests' garments. Some of the heads of fathers' households gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minas. That which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,000 silver minas and 67 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. Let's pray briefly. Lord, we've, we've talked about a movie, talked about several other things, but what we really want is to hear from you. What we really want to do is recognize that you are the God of Nehemiah and Moses and David and Jacob and Jeremiah and Ruth and Naomi and Esther, and we need to hear from you this morning. Your word is life. Your word is leadership. Your word is a light in the darkness. Please speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah's simplicity in verse 1 caught me off guard. This guy sounds like a contractor. There was a, a guy, Lee, at the church this week doing a little bit of work around the window in the church office in the window upstairs in the nursery, finishing that up. And I happened to be here when he finished. And he, when he was done, he came in the room and he said, I put a third coat on it. I sanded it a little bit. I'm leaving. I have to come back tomorrow and do another coat. Nehemiah talks the same way. There was a wall. We finished it. Except for the doors and the gates, verse 1 of chapter 7, we put the doors in the walls. Like he's just talking like we did the work. We did what we came here to do. Nehemiah's simplicity and this realism, it just catches me off guard. But it also drives home an important point. Kingdom builders start with urgent tasks. They get the priorities done first. A city in ruins needs a wall. A city surrounded by enemies, like you heard about in previous weeks, needs a wall. So the kingdom builders get to work. They build the wall, and when it's done, they say, we saw the need for a wall, and we built a wall. And this applies to you. God has chosen you as his workers. What's urgent in your life? What's urgent in our community? I put out a, a tool of sorts for you because... God has chosen you to focus on his priorities, to recognize urgent needs going on around you and the people that you know or even in your own personal life. And I just encourage you maybe just a few times a year, maybe once a month if, if that's helpful to you, but take some time, just a small amount of time, to just say, what are God's general priorities right now as I look around the community, the connections at work, my neighbors, the school I go to, the experiences. What are God's general priorities here? And, and Christ, to make this a little easier for you, Christ has said, I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I want you to love your neighbor like you love yourself. So he created, in a sense, some categories to limit our choices. This isn't the cereal aisle at the grocery store where there's like 74 different possibilities. There's only two. Love your neighbor and love God with your heart and soul. But you can ask, what are some ways that I might be able to love others? What are some ways that I can spend time and energy loving him more? And secondly, it might help you a little bit to look around at urgent needs in your own life and just say, what's going on right now in my life 
that's an urgent need or a priority. What about my family? What about my community? There might be a family in distress. There might be an opportunity for you to build something. It won't literally be a wall necessarily, and you may not see anything, and that's okay. There may be a season where everything's running pretty smoothly, um, or it might be a chance to ask God, you know, what, what do you see when you look around, God? I'm trying to look around. I'm thinking about things that need to be done, but I'm not seeing it. What is it? And as you think on this, I want you to know that the Lord is a good shepherd. He's asking you to respond according to your capacity. He's saying, contribute to my priorities, but I know what your capacity is. I know what your gifts are. I know what season of life you're in. Some of you are retired. Some of you are in a busy season at work. Some of you are in school. Some of you are raising children, different things going on. Some of you are doing all of the above. <laughs> you have life obligations. You have committed opportunities. We don't reinvent our life the way that Nehemiah did. He only left Babylon once and came to rebuild the wall. And the rest of the time, he was there. He was in that place. He had commitments. So he doesn't reinvent everything all the time. But he looks around and says, let's finish the work. I want to say, too, that some of you, if you're going through a painful experience, you've recently been through something really difficult, that can affect your capacity to jump right in. So your specific needs, your urgent priorities are part of that as well. About 15 years ago, I was talking to somebody and I realized there was kind of this discrepancy in my brain about health. I thought that, well, you know, you get hurt physically, you go see the doctor, right? You break a bone, you get a cast, you, um, you know, have a serious car accident, you go to the hospital. You know, like we have this whole system set up for these kind of physical injuries. But sometimes in life we have, you know, mental challenges and emotional injuries and, and wounds of the heart. Those take more time to work through, but they deserve care too. Wounds are wounds. And that's part of our capacity. And God's a good shepherd, a gracious God who knows us, and he's got a way for us to be faithful, to be a good shepherd like Doug was talking about, who leads us. We've got that opportunity. And these steps, these questions I'm talking about are just meant to take like 15 minutes. Just think a little bit. What's urgent around me? What's urgent in me? What's the wall I could be building? What's the work I could be doing? I think this can turn out to be a, a rhythm of obedience for you. And it might just be five minutes a week. It might just be for five minutes a week I'm going to do something. Or it might be I'm going to come to prayer on Wednesday nights. Whatever it is, it's just something you can pursue up to the level of your capacity for this time. And Nehemiah practices this. Look at verses 2 through 4. He says, Now, when the wall was rebuilt and I had installed the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites were appointed, then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Then I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. This is one of those practical things. What he's saying is we have lots of enemies around. Don't leave the gates open all day. <laughs> Keep them kind of closed. We're shutting down early. All right, we're locking the gates early. We're opening them late. We're minimizing the risk is what's going on there. And while they are standing guard, the gatekeepers are to keep the doors shut and bolted. This is like you put the deadbolt on at your house. You know what I mean? You, you go a little extra mile. You slow them down. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not built. Nehemiah seems to be realizing the wall is not the only work. We're changing a little bit from what has been the work, build the wall, build the wall, build the wall, to we've got the wall done and there's some other things we're focusing on. Post some guards, build some houses, shut the gate until the sun is hot. 
Nehemiah does two significant things at this transition moment. Number one, he welcomes new leaders. He sees people around that are good and faithful and beneficial, and he says, we're going to welcome those people into leadership. We're going to let those people come in and use their gifts. They're faithful. Now, in Nehemiah, who are these gifted workers? It's priests, it's Levites, it's singers, it's gatekeepers, it's temple servants. A whole lot of specific jobs there. And, and with good reason, that was God's design for the worship to happen in Jerusalem. So he raised these people up, he gave them to the body, and they used them. They, they put them into service. But what about now? What about Cape Cod? We don't have a gate here, <laughs> you know. We don't have all the same things that they have. But a survey of the New Testament, which I know might sound intimidating to some of you. Hang on, it's going to be quick. Not a real survey. It's helpful. Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 say that God gave gifts. God gave people who have gifts. Now, you can read those this week. You can do Ephesians 4 tomorrow, Romans 12 on Tuesday, 1 Corinthians 12 on Wednesday. You can spread it out, do Monday, Wednesday, Friday. But you can read those yourself, and it's good for you to read Scripture regularly. It puts spiritual muscle on you, and it'll show that God has given gifts. God has given gifted people that are what he wants now for his church as they worship. And these servants that Nehemiah welcomed are just faithful, God-fearing people. And it's not so much a question of performance, like, oh, they performed all these activities, but it's about the loyalty of their heart. Who or what do you love? Who or what are you faithful to? How much do you fear God? And I know the word fear can trip us up and be like, oh, that's a, that's a little bit outside my category, like fearing God. Like, but it doesn't mean frightened of who God is. It doesn't mean terrified by him because he has good character. He is the good shepherd, not the wicked shepherd or the mean shepherd or the cruel taskmaster. See, scripture is not talking about being afraid. It's talking about orienting your life around his purposes. It's saying that I'm, I'm having a way of life which reflects what God wants done so that when I'm working and when I'm with family and when I'm resting and when I'm spending my money and when I'm thinking, when I'm driving, my way of life says there's a God in heaven, and I'm living for him now. I mention this because people who would be leaders in the church and people who are leaders in God's family have got to be people who, first of all, have loyal hearts, faithful, God-fearing hearts. And that sounds terribly impractical and super hard to measure, but Nehemiah makes it plain. This is really important that the people God chooses are people who fear him. And there was a lot of people to honor, to revere, if you like that older term, in this setting. They could have been afraid of Sanballat. They could have been afraid. They could have honored Tobiah and said, well, you know, Tobiah married into the Jews, and he's got a lot of power, and Sanballat seems to know the king. We could honor him. We could revere these guys, but we're not doing it. We're not doing it. God is God, and we're going to honor him. That's what Hananiah did. He resisted all these competing loyalties, and he said, God's my first priority. And his faithfulness secured his fruitfulness. The wall gets done because people are faithful to God. So Nehemiah welcomes new leaders. Secondly, Nehemiah again defines reality. Have you noticed how often Nehemiah takes stock? Over these seven chapters, he goes around the city on a horse at night, looking at the gates, studying the rubble, thinking about all that's broken and torn down. He's always saying, what's reality here? Like, what's actually true here? What's actually going on here? How are we actually going to do this? He's got his boots on the ground. The guy is paying attention to what is going on. 
He studies the situation and he notices the city is empty, so he makes some practical decisions. Don't leave the gates and doors open as much as you did. Because we've got enemies, we don't have a lot of people, we need guards. Put them up there. Do you see how practical and clear he was? He knew the condition of the city, he knew the condition of the project. Part of our task as a church is to define reality. To clarify and to understand exactly what is going on. And it applies to us. Where are we in following Christ? Have we made a good start and now we need to kind of get a jump start and a jolt and get back on track? Are we doing great and everything's just going incredible? Did we, did we get some of the pieces in place, like we're, we're reading the Bible and we know to be praying or we know to be volunteering? This church is wonderfully strong in volunteering, incredibly strong group of volunteers here that really make it possible for us to gather and worship. Have we, have, are we missing a next step? Is there a transition? Consider your own situation, as I said before. Think about the reality the best way to start serving the Lord or, or, or start being faithful to him or increase our faithfulness is really to discover reality and say, what is actually happening and what am I actually doing? How am I actually living? Then you're much more able to do something about it. As this process goes on of reflecting, how do God's people handle the end of one situation, the wall is built, and what God seems to be doing, which is to say, I've got some more things we're going to do here. Well, they accept new leaders, they stay vigilant, remember they shut the doors and the gates, they observe unfinished needs, and most of all, they honor God prompts. They honor divine nudges. Did you hear the God prompt, by the way? It's in verse 5. Nehemiah says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Right there, the plot just twisted. Plot just twisted. This, this wall builder, this contractor didn't say, well, I need to come back tomorrow and, you know, do some more stacking and got to clean up the tools, got to pick up, got to vacuum around the job site, you know, got to. He didn't say that. He said, then God put it into my heart. We're not talking about the wall anymore. What is God up to? It was never about the wall. See, this divine nudge in chapter 7, verse 5, opens up the path into chapters 8, 9, and 10, which are what we think of as more spiritual activities that are coming. You'll see this in the coming weeks, but there's this emphasis on repentance and obedience and living lives of personal purity. The people of God start doing some things in 8, 9, and 10 that they haven't been doing in 1 through 7. The surprise of it is worship matters more than walls. The emphasis, it turns out, comes from heaven. This cupbearer who was in the presence of the king and was downcast in his face, and the king said, why are you bothered seven chapters ago? The king's wondering what's going on, and Nehemiah says the walls are torn down. Well, seven chapters later, we find out it wasn't just about the walls. It was about a group of people who built a wall so that God could be worshipped more. In the ancient world, Jerusalem was a city of worship, a place where God's people gathered to worship and to grow in faith and to serve him and to trust him and follow him. And the same is true today in the cities and the towns where we live. We are worshipers in our towns and cities. We show people there is light in the world. There is life in the world. There is a God who reorients our lives. We witness as worshipers. 
We show the world that there is a God. They see us living for him. They see us singing about him. They see us praying to him, giving to him, worshiping him. They see us trusting him and obeying him. We are his witnesses, and part of our witness is just being worshipers. This is why I struggle sometimes. I see churches that operate a thrift store and don't necessarily seem to go beyond that. I mean, I don't know their hearts. I don't, I haven't, like, I, don't make, I don't have time to make exhausting studies of what other people are doing with their lives, but I get the impression that like they're 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 just kind of got the thrift store and that's that's the kind of the end, and I, and and we used to live in Oregon and our neighborhood in Oregon had this church surrounded by a metal fence, with one of those really heavy metal gates on like an electric pulley that like pulled the gate back. You had to type in a key code, you know, and be like you remember, you know, it's like the church office back there. You know, you push in the code and like the door with a big gate, you know, and so you pull up in your car. The guy pushes the button or the woman pushes the button and the gate goes back. And then they drive in, and the gate goes, it's like a gated condo or something, you know? And the guy goes in, well, one day we happen to be walking by. Guy pulls up to the gate. We get there just at the right time to kind of say, hey, what's this building? Because there was no sign outside that said, like, you know, First Methodist or whatever, or, you know, Selwood, the name of the neighborhood was Selwood, like Selwood Church or something, nothing like that. So we're like, what is this building surrounded by a gate? I'm thinking it's like a military, you know, fortress or something like that, you know? But thing goes back, and the guy says, oh, we're a church. I'm like, oh, what kind of church? Oh, you know, just a church. <laughs> like, all right, you know what? But I mean, what do you guys do? Well, you know, we're just a church. Just a church. Okay. <laughs> Gate closes, he drives away. I'm like, huh? You know? Huh? I'm kind of confused right now. Okay, I think I know. I think I know what church is kind of like, but I mean, I don't get the wall, the gate, you know, and the big metal fence, and like no sign, you know, no time of like worship service or like when to come. I probably don't have a Facebook page nowadays. I don't know. Like I don't know, because Acts one eight says we shall be his witnesses. We will be his witnesses. What do we witness to? Well, we definitely witness to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We definitely say he can save you from your sins. But I mean, we, within that, we can honestly tell people he will deliver you. He will transform you. He will turn your life around. He will give you a new name. He's a deliverer, a mighty, loving savior. He sets me free from all that was ruining me. I've got my own story. You've probably got yours. I was like on a path to ruin, making all kinds of stuff, right? But there's another level of being a witness. It's saying I'm a worshiper. I used to be indifferent. I used to not care. I used to not know. And now, man, I'm worshiping him. I'm singing his praises because he deserves it. People see you come in on a Sunday or a Wednesday night or go to Pat and Rachel's house for the home group they hosted last weekend. It's like, wow, we're worshiping. There's something different about their life. They're going somewhere. They're literally doing something we don't do. There must be something we don't know. And we say, actually, there's someone you don't know. We're worshipers. In two Sundays, I mentioned this before, but in two Sundays, Emilio's going to share about the kind of where Youth for Christ is because we've gathered around them as a church. And, and honestly, God has given his family to us and said, I'm calling them and I brought them from South Africa and I'm giving them to you because I'm going to work through you and among you and around you. And Emilio is going to share in a couple of weeks just so we stay in track and in step with his family as they lead Youth for Christ. And here's the thing, you know, you'll get that deep dive, so I can't do it. I'm excited to hear from it. But but what I know is that it's not the same as the Boys and Girls Club or the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts or school sports teams or something like that. And these programs do good things. They bring about benefits. And I, I think helping them and volunteering, if that's something you do, that's, that's a key part of what you know, can happen that does help teenagers. But our church and what Emilio and his family are doing, what you guys are doing, a long way away, 
what you all are doing. I don't even know what you all are doing, but what you all are doing, what's happening in the church, I just know you're a pastor and Lady Benita. So what's happening in the church, what's happening in the gospel is that earthly activities are happening that transform people into worshipers. See, what the Lord does is goes a step farther beyond these admittedly good programs, goes a step farther and says, I'm creating worshipers. I'm creating worshipers. You all are doing it too. I'm creating worshipers. Now, some of you are pretty sharp, and you're going to say, pastor's up there talking about worshipers a lot, but he just said something about an administrative assistant before. Now, why are we hiring an administrative assistant if we're up here just talking about worship, 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 worship? Because isn't worship just sing, 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 and pray, pray, pray? And I mean, you know, why, why, like, like youth for Christ worshipers, you know, we get our heads in this way. So, you know, some of you who are a little more straightforward are just like, come on, preacher man. <laughs> is it worship or is it the administrative assistant? If you have that question, I appreciate your thinking so critically. I really do. Thank you for listening so closely. Your head is on straight. You're thinking like Nehemiah. We're hiring an administrative assistant because earthly labor and eternal labor go together. Our ability to come together as a worshiping community depends on worship leaders and on administrators, people with those giftings. Worship will suffer if we don't excellently manage the details. And if you doubt that, imagine what happens if nobody's paying attention to the electricity bill and nobody's paying attention to the details. The details matter. You've already seen me forget to pray for the children or even like send them upstairs. My own child over there is kind of like, can we be done yet? You know, like we need people who remember what's going on and keep track of these things because the church functions through worship, which is this idea of eternal labor, but it also functions through administration and all kinds of other gifts, which feels like earthly labor. And Nehemiah 7 brings them both together. And this has been happening in our church for months now because Dave Melilla and Rich Kaiser and other people have been stepping it up and saying, we're, we can sort of figure out our next part of our thing. And our next part of our thing is saying an administrative assistant would be part of our worship. Part of being a group of people who are prepared and centered on God. Because worship depends on earthly labor, musical, all the rest, and administrative. Earthly and eternal labor overlap. They go together. I would love for them to stay separate in my brain. You know, like I want, I want to compartmentalize. I'm like, we're building a wall or we're worshiping. And God is like, both. And I'm like, no, but we're, and he's like, both, both. I've got it all together here. And this overlap is reflected in our church vision, a Cape Cod community that restores and keeps people close to Christ. Our church vision reflects the plot twist of Nehemiah 7. All along, we think we're building a wall, and we find out what we're doing is preparing for worship as the highest purpose of our life. It's the same here. We've been given an identity by God. We're the light of the world. We're a lamp on a table. We are a Cape Cod community that restores people and keeps them close to Christ. The gospel has an earthly dimension, restoring people, and it has an eternal aspect as well, which is keeping people close to Christ. And he said, I've got them in my right hand. Nothing can snatch them out. We have the privilege of saying, you can end up in that place, held in the right hand of God, which is the strong hand, and nothing can snatch you out. 
and it keeps them close to Christ for eternity through the gospel. There's people like Nehemiah and Esther and Abraham, Moses, David, Ruth, all these people. They made incredible contributions to the will of God on earth. Their, their names, their stories, they're all in here because they did earthly labor. And the lasting legacy of these people isn't just building a wall or starting a family out of which the Messiah would come or rebuilding Jerusalem and creating worship. It's not just those things. They moved redemptive history forward. They moved the work of God forward so that people would not just have walls around their cities, but be worshipers. They advanced these people. They advanced the theological reality of a God who rescues, who sets free who helps, who loves, who transforms. Consider Abraham. Is, is God pleased with Abraham's faith? Yes, but Genesis 12 says he will be the father of many nations for all generations, a blessing to the world for centuries. And so he is. Nehemiah chapter 7 makes it plain. He went there to build a wall. That's what he told the king. The walls are torn down. I'm here to build a king. I'm here to build a wall. And then in verse 7, sorry, verse 5, chapter 7, he says, Then God put it into my heart, this divine nudge comes that changes things. God put it in my heart to assemble these people, to register them. God wanted to form a people for himself. They needed worship, not just a wall. That's why God went all the way past earthly transformation and he sent his son. Because there was more to be done. And Jesus, by the way, had to grow up worshiping in the same Jerusalem where the walls are now being rebuilt, where the people are being counted, where the Levites and the temple servants and the gatekeepers, all of that stuff is making a place for Jesus to come and be raised so that he can be a faithful Jewish boy who would grow up into the faithful Messiah, the Son of God, became the Son of Man. But he had to grow up in a real place and learn to worship and learn to obey. Nehemiah 7 fuses together. It's an incredible plot twist. Totally surprises us, but it fuses together the earthly reality and the eternal reality. God wants a wall and God wants worshipers. And the wall was needed because the worship was desired. As you go this morning, you can be a wall builder. This afternoon, Thursday night, whenever, you can make a difference. Honestly, you probably don't even know yet what God has in store for you who love him. You're going to be surprised this week. You're going to be surprised this week. But there are going to be moments when you go, oh, right now is a wall-building moment. And it's not just a wall-building moment. It's not just earthly activity. It can actually become eternal activity because somebody says, I think I might allow a little bit more God in my life. I think I might obey him a little bit more. I think I see somebody worshiping, and I realize that's a better way of life than the way I'm living. What are the earthly realities around you? What are God's eternal priorities let him show you through the Holy Spirit your own divine nudges. Right here's a moment. Right here's a moment where the two overlap. I can restore people. I can keep them close to Christ. I can build a wall. I can help somebody worship. If you've chosen Christ, you're a kingdom traitor. You've left the domain of darkness, and you're walking, you're living in the kingdom of his beloved son. You can live like it. I'm going to say a prayer for us, and you are free to go. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we want to live like it this week. You've done an incredible thing in Nehemiah 7 because the wall got done through people who paid attention 
who said we need a wall and the wall's got to be built a certain way and the gates have got to be shut during certain times and there's got to be guards posted. And, and then you led them, you gave them a divine nudge. And I ask in the name of Christ that this week we'd get our own divine nudges. And may it be this week, may it be this week that all the building that we've been doing, all the earthly labor that we've been doing comes with a divine nudge to say, pay attention to these people. Get these people together. I want to do something in people's lives because we know that you're more interested in the people ultimately than the projects. So help us this week to navigate the earthly and the eternal pieces of this for ourselves. And may it be this week that we hear a nudge from you and respond faithfully, respond obediently. We thank you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.